4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans appear. 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Miles Traer. And I'm Mike Osborne. And today we're featuring an interview with Dr. Andrew Guzman. And Mike, I actually know nothing about this interview. So <laughs> can you sort of tell us uh, a little bit about it? Sure. So Dr. Guzman recently wrote a book called Overheated, The Human Cost of Climate Change. And he tells an interesting story in the book. So often climate change is couched in environmental terms and people don't really think about the human consequences. And in this book, he really focuses on the human consequences. It's not about polar bears and coral reefs and, and biodiversity. It's more about uh, environmental refugees and international conflict and the spread of disease. How are people going to be affected by global warming? And he's also extremely clear about we don't know this for sure, but this is what we think we know. And the real take-home message to me of the book was that climate change is not going to affect us in one way or in five ways or in 10 ways. It's going to affect us in 100 different small ways that are very difficult to attribute back. And at the end of the day, it really brought home to me why this is such a communication problem. So it sounds like he actually has a pretty active interest in staying true to the science, staying true to, I hate the word, but the uncertainties of it. But at the same time, you know, saying this is a big deal. It's not apocalyptic, but it's a big deal. Absolutely. And in fact, he, throughout the book, assumes a two-degree warming. And he said, the reason I assumed a two-degree warming is that, one, that's on the conservative side of what we expect, and two he's able to make all his points with just a two degree warming. Uh, and so he didn't actually delve into the science all that much, although there is a chapter in there about some of the basics of greenhouse gas emissions. So how did Dr. Guzman get on your radar? Right. So I'd actually heard an interview he'd done on the local NPR station, and I got an email that he was going to be in Palo Alto uh, at a speaking event at the local Patagonia outlet. And so I called up the folks at Patagonia and said, hey, we do this podcast, Generation Anthropocene, and we really would like to talk to Dr. Guzman. Can you guys help out? Can I come over there and record the interview? And they said, well, I don't know. Let me see your website and send it to them. And they're like, oh, this looks awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> turned out they were fans. And I actually wanted to thank Logan McCoy at Patagonia for letting us use the office and helping facilitate the whole interview. Yeah. Uh, and at one point, there, the phone rings in the office. Uh, so the quality control was not, you know, studio time. But well, we were recording somewhere else. We were recording somewhere else. It's offsite. But it was, a, it was a pleasure to talk to him, and I am grateful to Patagonia for helping make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Let's get to the interview. So welcome. This is Mike Osborne. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Guzman. He's a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, where he's also the Associate Dean for International Education. He's written several books, including How International Law Works and International Trade Law. His most recent book is Overheated, The Human Cost of Climate Change, 
which he focuses on the human dimension of climate impacts. So, Dr. Guzman, welcome to Generation Anthropocene. Thanks for talking with me. So, you're a professor of international law and trade, and my guess is that climate change sort of gets woven into some of the conversations you have. But how did you come to write this book? So it does, though I actually, uh, as your question suggests, came to this book differently. I had a moment some years ago when I decided I wanted to look to new topics, and climate change was the obvious choice. It's the most pressing problem of our time. And I had this notion that if I was an international law scholar and professor who didn't do climate change at the turn of the century, my grandchildren one day would ask me what I was doing, and I would sound like somebody who wasn't interested in Nazi Germany in 1939. So I turned to this topic, not knowing that much about it, and so I was gathering information. And one of the things that struck me, even though this book is in many ways a departure for me from my normal writing, it was impossible to avoid the fact that everything I saw that was well done spoke to the physical effects of climate change. The, uh, the fact that the seas will rise, the fact that glaciers will melt. And none of it, or not enough of it, spoke to why people should care. That is, there was an assumption that if you persuaded people that the polar bears were endangered, that the person on the street would be motivated by that. And that seemed like a false assumption to me. So this book was an attempt to bridge that gap. I mean, this book is not really intended to convert climate skeptics necessarily. And throughout the book, you sort of assume a two degree Celsius warming, which is on the conservative end and fingers crossed that right. <laughs> that's what it is. But it seemed to me that the, the real target audience with this was people who had accept the basic tenets of the climate science, but had yet to really recognize the cost. Is that is that fair? I think, I think that's right. It's certainly not to address skeptics. I am not persuaded that skepticism about the science is especially robust. I think there's a lot of people or a certain number of people who have an interest in the science being wrong and so they'll commit to that view. And then there's lots of people who hear that and kind of embrace it, but I actually suspect that it's more of a way to avoid having to encounter a difficult reality. So I think of the key target person for this book that is consistent with what you're saying, but I think of it in these terms. If you were in an airport about to fly across the country and you bought a book at the airport bookstore, that's the person I want. That is a person who's willing to read a nonfiction book on the topic, but who has no particular expertise and no axe to grind. And obviously you could think of that person in many other contexts, but it's someone who is interested enough to read a book, but not a specialist. Yeah. Let me back up a second, because you mentioned this, this example of, you know, your grandchildren uh, asking, you know, where were you in 1935? Essentially, that, that sort of analogy. Was there, was there a more specific moment where you sit in your office one day and said, I've really got to tackle this subject or was it a sort of slow buildup? It, no, it wasn't that. It was, I was aware of the fact that climate change was critically important and I hadn't done any academic work on it and didn't know that. I only knew what the New York Times had told me about it. But I did have a, a there was a kind of epiphany moment of a sort. So I was already planning to work on the subject and I went to a talk that was organized uh, within my law school that was really meant to be a kind of climate change for dummies talk. That is, it was someone who knew what they were talking about speaking to a gen, our faculty but not intending to do new academic work. It was more just informational to tell us about climate change. And so I was listening to this person, and he was listing a whole bunch of consequences of climate change. And the thing that, that resonated with me, but that was not being said explicitly, was it seemed to me that the kinds of impacts that were being discussed represented not merely a series of consequences, but a threat to the stability of the larger system. That is, the social structures we have, the human institutions we've built, the way we manage ourselves. 
you know, there's only so much that a society or a system can take before it starts to collapse in other ways. And so as I was listening to him, I was struck by uh, the possibility that there might be deeper problems. And some of that comes out in the book. Yeah. Well, actually, that that to me was a, a theme throughout the book is that so many of these consequences are sort of indirect. It's more about context. I mean, you hit on several themes, spread of disease, environmental refugees displaced, international conflicts along borders, potential for terrorism. And it's not like any one of these single factors is directly attributable to climate change. And it actually struck me as it's a sort of preponderance of evidence thing, that it's, it's all these things added up that makes it alarming and scary. I think that's true. And I think the fact that these, a lot of these, as you say, are knock-on effects is part of the communication gap. So a good example is refugees, as you mentioned. Floods are perhaps the most common natural disaster in terms of number of people affected. I believe they're the most common. But they don't kill that many people because you can almost, most people get away from the floods. The problem is what happens next. Their houses are flooded out. There's standing water, which promotes disease. There's a lack of food. There's a lack of water. So the flood itself is actually arguably not that harmful, but it creates a whole series of conditions that are terribly dangerous. And climate change creates flooding, so it does that. But climate change is one more step removed because you've got to understand the climate change causes the flooding, then the flooding causes this other problem. And it does that over and over again. And that's precisely because physical changes, at least the ones from climate change, require another link in the chain before they're devastating to us. But that link in the chain is usually pretty easy to see. And so you can see, you can see how it's coming. You see how it's going to affect us. Uh, let's start off with the book. Let's get into the specifics of a little bit and talk about environmental refugees. There was a number that leapt out at me. Uh, I think it was from the, I've got to look this up, the International Organization for Migration, where they say, and I'm, I'm quoting here, uh, this is a quote from your book and you're, you're quoting them. They estimate anywhere from 25 million to 1 billion environmental refugees. So with 200 million being the most widely cited number. That's... A fantastic range, 25 million to, to 1 it billion. <laughs> it is an enormous range. And I think the next sentence in the book, though I don't have it in front of me, yeah. tells you what that would mean if you were getting an estimate on your car. That's right. sort of <laughs> a massive estimate. And uh, it's absolutely true. And this is one of the tricky things is the least harmful version of climate change in most estimates, in most particularities, is not that harmful. But it's also not that probable. And the most harmful is cataclysmic. It's end of the world kind of stuff. But obviously, the most harmful is also not especially likely. And so if you try to, the reason I assume two degrees change was you can get lost in these competing estimates and different assumptions, different models, and you lose your way. And so it seemed to me that what, what was most important was to figure out what would be a non-alarmist conservative estimate, which is the two degrees. And then as I worked that through, I tried to consistently... Um, when forced with an assumption to make an assumption that involved choosing from some uh, range to choose on the low end, because it turns out I could make all my points, even though I consistently had this bias towards lower numbers. Yeah. So in terms of sea level rise, which is sort of an easy, easy way to start in a sense, because it's easiest to visualize, um, you begin by talking about some low-lying nations, uh, Maldives, for example. And in this case, we're sort of talking about hundreds of thousands, potentially. So we'll get to Bangladesh in a second. But with the uh, low-lying nations, where are we with that? Is anybody taking this seriously yet? Is anybody talking about massive relocation? I mean, as, as, as near as I can tell, the 
leaders of the low-lying nations are taking it pretty seriously. Sure. Um, but I'm not sure anybody else is. So the Maldives, uh, which is the one that most people have heard of, and, it, and I talk about the Maldives in my book, they're just too big to relocate. There's too many people. You can't imagine any. The Tuvalu is smaller. Tuvalu has a shot. You can imagine Tuvalu being the people literally being relocated en masse to somewhere in India, maybe, or maybe in Australia. The Maldives would like that, but it seems to me it's highly improbable. I think the question is whether the the exit is orderly or uh, emergency crisis. That is, so if a storm comes at the wrong time, and and the international community is then plucking these people out of the sea, it'll be a, it'll be horrible. Um, rather than acknowledging what's happening and finding some way to get them off of their existing land, but nobody knows where you would put them then, because every because wherever you put them is where they're going to stay. So. If Australia says, well, you can stay here, they can't say you can stay here temporarily. They'll really be saying you can stay here permanently, and Australia may not want to do that. I mentioned Bangladesh a second ago. We recently did an interview where I learned that the India-Bangladesh border is seeing an increase in border security. And Bangladesh is often mentioned as a real hotspot for climate vulnerability. How, how did it factor into your book? What did you discover in your research? Well, so, so there are some things in climate change that emerge that everybody talks about, and Bangladesh is one of them, because it's easily the most vulnerable country to sea rise. The most stunning number to me is that it's expected. So two degrees rise in temperatures equates, again, conservatively to a one meter rise in sea, in sea levels this century. If that happens, Bangladesh loses about 17% of its landmass. Now, that's a huge share of your landmass. And if you think of the United States, if you, if you think of 17% of the United States as being the entire eastern seaboard, you'd actually be wrong because you have to move pretty far west to get 17%. On the west coast, it's all of the west coast states and then a few others. That is all the states on the coast and then a couple further. Un- unimaginable. So it's a staggering yeah. amount of land to lose. And, you know, Bangladesh is a weak, poor, populous country. There's no particular reason to think the state of Bangladesh can withstand that kind of a shock. And so, and there's 150 million people there now. Right, it's very densely populated. Lots of them will be in land that's not flooded. Perhaps 20 million will be in land that is flooded. And uh, you're back to the same problem, which is where do they go? Well, we know where people go when they lose their land. They go to cities or they find themselves in some kind of refugee camp. The Bangladeshi cities that remain are going to be just crumbling. They're going to be over overrun, so to speak, because massive numbers of new people putting burdens on all of their systems is just think of the sewage system alone, but transportation, sanitation, healthcare systems. And then you mentioned the India border. Uh, it's true that India uh, may be done now, but it has been constructing a wall or a fence. And as you were mentioned, that these climate change produces these knock-on effects. So this is an immigration problem between Bangladesh and India. India will be suffering from its own climate change problems because the same things happening in Bangladesh will be happening in India just not 17% or anything like it, but they'll still be in trouble. And the question is, if you're India, what do you do when millions of people are trying to cross your border on foot? Well, you build a fence. Fences are only useful up to a point. And how much violence are you prepared to use to keep that border secure? It's not at all clear to me that the border can remain intact. And so that's another example of an institution or a structure, human structure, that I'm not sure it works when you've got this level of dislocation. And to make it work would require a kind of humanitarian disaster kind of or violence that is hard to imagine from a country that is not a particularly violent country like India. Another way in which these knock-on effects uh, come to compound when it when it comes to environmental refugees, you mentioned refugees in refugee camps or moving into cities where the opportunity for disease and the poor sanitation, if infrastructure is stressed, really starts to compound. 
So maybe you can talk a bit about that. Sure. This is this is one of those risks that is a little bit hard to discuss. Um, and the thing to keep in mind is climate change is going to do a whole bunch of things that we're pretty certain are going to have bad effects. And then it's going to do a bunch of other things that uh, will increase the risk or probability of bad effects. So disease is in both of these camps. On the one hand, an easy example is it will aggravate asthma, which doesn't sound like that big a deal. But if you think of how many people in the globe have asthma, a small worsening of that condition actually creates a lot of human suffering. Uh, but on the other side, we live at constant risk, though we often don't pay attention to it, of disease causing massive global harms. This is the 1918 Spanish flu, but it's also we've seen this threats of this in the form of SARS, in the form of avian flu, most recently China's newest avian flu outbreak. So virologists worry about this. The World Health Organization worries about this, and it has nothing to do with climate change. But climate change will operating against that backdrop, create conditions that are exactly what you would want to do if you're trying to create a global pandemic. It will concentrate lots of people in small spaces with bad hygiene, people who are already sick. It will have people with different immunities mixing, and then it will be moving them a lot. So if there's an outbreak, it will find lots of friendly hosts, and those hosts will then be moved, and so the virus will have an opportunity to travel. It's not a prediction. That is, I wouldn't say I'm confident that this is going to happen, but Climate change takes a lot of really terrible things and makes them somewhat more likely. And that's, as a group, that's pretty scary. Yeah. No, that's a real theme of your book. And I want to return to it in a second. I want to ask one other question. So there, there's some discussion in your book about food security as well as water security. Uh, and then there's a blurb on terrorism that I found really compelling. And it was in Nigeria, where one thing that hopped out at me is that we we in the U.S. import about as much oil from Nigeria as we do from Saudi Arabia. Right. That I did not know. I knew right. we. I knew Nigeria had a lot of oil, but I didn't know it was it was that much. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Well, there's gen there's been a general increase in the importance of Africa to the United States, partly because of oil um, and partly because of terrorism. And so we associate oil with the Middle East, and we associate terrorism perhaps with the Middle East, perhaps with Afghanistan. But in fact, they're both present in large quantities, or at least concerns are present. Uh, and this is an easy case to make because you can just observe what the United States is doing in terms of its diplomatic efforts, its intelligence efforts, its military efforts. All of the investments in Africa have increased. And Nigeria is one example of that. And Nigeria is a country that uh, you would think it was designed to create these problems because, as you say, there's lots of oil. It's a weak government. It has major ethnic divisions. The oil, as it often does in countries, has created additional tensions because the oil is not in the wealthy part of the country. So the people who live with the environmental consequences of the oil don't get the money, and the people who get the money don't live with the environmental consequences. And it has this, a fairly rich history of violent insurgencies. And it has an extremist, violent Islamic movement. So all the, all the ingredients are there. So the United States right now is worried about Nigeria. And again, doesn't need climate change to be worried about it. Uh, the underwear bomber is Niger was Nigerian. The underwear bomber was Nigerian? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. He'd been to Yemen and stuff. But uh, the, uh, the then climate change is going to essentially put a vice to everything in Nigeria, and indeed to everything in sub-Saharan Africa. Africa seems to be cursed with the worst of whatever bad happens in the world, and this is no exception. So agriculture will be squeezed. Um, Rain-dependent crops are expected to fall in yield by 50% in a country that can't really afford that. So living in Nigeria will be much more difficult. That's obviously horrendous if you're Nigerian, um, but it's not so good for the United States either, precisely because 
it makes it all the more likely that the government will fail to maintain order, that insurgencies will become more powerful, that it'll be easier for terrorist groups to operate, and that the oil supply we rely on will be disrupted, which is one of the strategies of insurgent groups. Obviously, if the country is heavily relying on oil, you try and blow up the pipeline. And that's something these groups are doing now, uh, sometimes with success, sometimes not, but they haven't disrupted the flow in a systematic way. And going forward, all of those harms are more likely. They exist today. If, if there were no climate change, we'd be worried about those things. But they're more likely to happen with climate change. Where in writing this book did you start to get scared? <laughs> I mean, did you start to sort of look at this and say, oh, okay, now now I really get some of this alarmist rhetoric that's out there? I think I think I sheltered myself in the the exercise of writing. Because you can write in a you can, you force yourself to write in a clinical way. One of the one of the biggest risks I saw in this book was to be perceived as alarmist or hyperbolic. You're pretty upfront with so that in the book. I you try, should, yeah. I try very hard not to do that, um, while at the same time not being um, unduly optimistic or utopian. So I tried to walk that balance, and I think part of that turned it into an intellectual exercise that allowed me some distance. I actually was more distressed after the book was published than I was while I was writing it because the exercise of writing it was its own task, which hopefully also meant that I didn't get caught up into the, the into any kind of hyperbole. But so I think in a way I was affected more afterwards, though obviously I wasn't ignorant of what I was putting in the book or what I was seeing. But that exercise of gathering it all together was also part of what, I don't know, maybe that protected me in a sense because it was, it was an exercise. It was, okay, I've got to get this information. Let's see what the uh, CIA says about this. Let's see what think tanks say about this. Let's see what academics say about this. And so it was a, a, a gathering of intellectual ideas or, or insights or views. And I think somewhere in there it made it less personal. But afterwards, it was alarming because I was no longer engaged in that exercise. One of the big challenges when you start to study the climate change issue is that what becomes apparent before too long is that the poor of the world are the most vulnerable. And you, you can approach the question sort of cynically and say, why should Americans care? We're rich. We're going to have food security. We're going to have water security. And that's true to some extent. But at some point, these events start to accumulate in a way that you wonder when it is going to hit Americans in a different way. So I think that's true. I think that there's a moral uh, imperative to recognize and think about and react to the fact that in many places in the world, climate change is already happening and is going to be far, far worse before too long. So even if it were the case that we largely could float above it, given that we've grown rich on greenhouse gas emissions, we should care about this and we should do something about it. The exercise in the book assumes we won't, because I think that that's factually correct. I think just as a descriptive matter, the history of rich countries engaging in large-scale efforts to combat global poverty is a thin history. So I think the persuasive case, the case that's going to really move people, is one of self-interest. And I think that's a strong case. I think the United States, even if it doesn't care at all about anyone outside its own borders, should be going full bore to address this problem. So I make that as a strategic decision. That is, I'm trying to present to people what I think is a reason to act. But I don't in any way mean to disagree with the statement that there's a strong moral imperative. I just have some skepticism that that drives public policy, that that's going to get our government to change policy. But it is, it's undeniably true that there's a deep injustice here that countries that have, or individuals in countries that have had virtually zero effect on the climate are going to bear a huge burden.
So the book is available Amazon on Amazon, and uh, it's uh, let's go ahead and say the title again. The book's called uh, "Overheated: The Human Cost of Climate Change," and it's a fascinating read, and I highly recommend it. So, Dr. Andrew Guzman, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank our guru, Tom Hayden, as well as Maxine Luckett for all their behind-the-scenes work. (laughs) Special thanks to Pam Mattson, the Dean of Stanford School of Earth Sciences. And a very special thanks to Maserati for letting us use their song, Monoliths. We also want to thank KZSU Stanford 90.1, where most, but not all, of our interviews are recorded. You can find past episodes on our website, anthropocene.stanford.edu, where you can also submit a story idea of your own. Follow our conversation on Twitter, at Gen Anthropocene, or like us on Facebook. I'm Mike Osborne. I'm Miles Traer. And I'm Leslie Chang. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Welcome to our new geologic age.